0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In Aurora, 15 teenagers shot in almost as many days. Officials struggle to identify a pattern.
1: We don't know why people, young people, why they're making these decisions to to settle their disputes with gunfire.
0: CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry with what we do know. Then, the importance of context in crime reporting. Without it, reality can get warped, which is what one journalist says happened in Denver in the summer of 1993. The press dubbed it the summer of violence. Articles about shootings and gangs spiked, even though violent crime really hadn't. Later, remembering a state Supreme Court justice and a poet. That's the same guy, by the way, Gregory Hobbs.
1: As you enjoy the gifts of family
0: and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at CPR would like to thank the members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Stress, social media, bullying the pandemic. Community leaders in Aurora say there are many factors behind the recent wave of youth shootings. But while the causes may be many, immediate solutions are few. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry has been talking with people in Aurora about what's happening. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. Let's just remind people what is going on. Fifteen teenagers have been shot in 20 days in the past month.
2: Yes, but this rash, all happening within just a few weeks around Thanksgiving, ranked Aurora as one of the most violent places to be in the United States in November.
0: Have there been any arrests?
2: There have been some. Two teens were arrested for the first mass shooting that was at a park next to Aurora Central High School when six kids were injured. And three other kids faced charges for the second mass shooting, which happened a few days later at Hinkley High. There was a third mass shooting that was just last weekend at a party off of East Colfax, and there were no arrests in that case so far.
0: Are any of these shootings connected as far as police know?
2: So there's no evidence at this moment that any of the shootings are connected. I spoke with Aurora Deputy Police Chief Darren Parker.
1: If they were to be connected... It's an easier explanation, right? One group got mad at another group. You know, the first incident happens and then there's a retaliation, you know, that kind of a thing. It it provides an explanation. We don't believe we have that at this point. So it is concerning. We don't know why people, young people, why they're making these decisions to, to settle their disputes with gunfire.
2: Police do believe one of the shootings, the Hinckley High shooting, was connected to gangs, but they don't know about the others. At least that's what they're saying now.
0: Okay, obviously, something they're investigating. Mm-hmm. What are people who work with kids saying about what's happening?
2: Well, you know, the factors behind youth violence are complicated. And I don't just, I don't want to say that it's any one thing because no one I talked to said it was just one thing. But almost to a person, they cite an increase in isolation and trauma and mental health problems teens are facing coming into the school year. Mm. You know, it was likely exacerbated by the pandemic all the time alone. But really, these are issues that have been ongoing for a long time. And obviously, some of this stuff is really complex. Some of these teens have fathers who are already in the justice system. Some have absentee families or abuse in their past. You know, in other words, the pandemic may just be underlining stuff that's been in existence for a long time, but it's made it all pretty acute. One man I talked to is a violence interrupter named Jason McBride. A
0: violence interrupter?
2: A violence interrupter. He compared the situation to someone who's been in solitary confinement. The pressure they're under just keeps building and building until they explode. I also spoke to Lawrence Goshan, who's also a violence interrupter. He works at an organization called GRASP. He talks about the situation this way.
0: It's getting hard for me to go to work because every time I go to work, it's violence. Like, before the pandemic, we at least had the opportunity to have some, some, um, some victories. Like, we'd have the violence, now that, but we were able to connect with the kids and sit back and laugh and joke and have these events and see, and see the progress these children were making. We don't see that very often anymore. So if that's frustrating for me, I can definitely understand how that can be frustrating for the youth because they don't have any outlets.
2: So as you can hear, you know, those from the trenches, if they're feeling this kind of despair, it means the kids are too.
0: What role does social media play, Allison? Because while these kids have been more isolated, they're really connected online, right?
2: Right. You know, I asked a lot about social media to all kinds of people, community leaders, the young people themselves. And a lot of them said they worried the increased time on social media has made life a little surreal for these kids. Like, They may not actually understand what guns can do because it's all kind of abstract, like a game or a movie. You know, does a 15-year-old really understand that if he sprays a parking lot with gunfire, it can kill people? I mean, it seems like he would. But we also shouldn't discount that they may see this in movies or online all the time, and it's no biggie. You know, people duck, and there are heroes and whatnot. So a lot of what they watch isn't rooted in reality— and we know that these kids spent so much time online during the pandemic. I also heard that a lot of beefs and fights start online. Mm. So a kid sees another kid talking to his girlfriend or whatever. The squabbling starts on social media and pours into parking lots and parties and schools.
0: course, uh, so Chris, these, these weapons are leading to lots and lots of injuries.
2: Yeah, and interestingly, you know, in these mass shooting incidents, I noted there weren't any fatalities. The deputy police chief says this is great. You know, obviously they don't want anyone to die by gunfire, but he said there could be sort of a bad byproduct to that.
1: At the same time, when people do survive, I think it it adds to this idea of well, you know, my friend got shot and they're fine. You know what I mean? Like they're they're back at school in a month, or you know whatever it is, and it, it almost adds to the problem then of well, it's, how big a deal is it? Hmm.
2: Yeah. So clearly, you know, everyone's relieved there are no deaths in the mass shootings, but that it may not drive home the gravity of gun violence as much as police and community leaders hope. And that could lead to worse violence. I think the reality of gun violence needs to be talked about in school groups, classes, by mentors, and perhaps by people who've been directly affected by gun violence.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And our justice reporter at CPR, Allison Sherry, joins us After this rash of youth violence in Aurora in recent weeks. Allison, what are people trying to do to help the kids who are at risk of becoming targets or perpetrators of this violence?
2: There are just so many interesting efforts afoot on this across the city, from violence interrupters, like I mentioned. You know, these are people who get texts when a victim of violence is admitted to the hospital. They go to the hospital bed, and they try to stop further violence from happening right there. There are also these mentoring programs that start with at-risk kids as young as eight years old. And there are violence intervention strategists who work on sort of a bigger level to try to get kids to divert anger into more productive ways. One of the people doing this work is Haleem Ali. He runs a mentoring program called From the Heart. And he talked about, you know, particularly the lack of coping skills with a lot of these kids, the anger management problems he's seeing among those coming out of the pandemic and quarantines and isolation.
0: So now what ends up happening, they're hurting. A lot of the fathers of the young men that I work with, they're not present, Mm -hmm. right? And they wonder, they, they feel unwanted, unloved, and abandoned right and then they take that out on someone for the smallest reason someone who has stepped on their shoe or someone who has talked or spoke to their girlfriend right it's 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 very the the, the, the reasons it's not they, they they feel like they don't have anything to live for
2: so the point is you know i think for everybody life is full of disappointment and hard times and if you get out of the practice of dealing with that coping with it on a daily basis in a school or at work or in the world When you do hit something difficult, you might deal with it in a very unproductive or even violent way.
0: Are there enough resources in place for these kinds of efforts?
2: I mean, the short answer is no. We need more adults to be with these kids. I interviewed the Aurora Public School superintendent who told me he knows that just having more adults around caring about the kids can make this huge measurable difference. But he's dealing with massive staffing shortages, just like districts across the country. I know there are intervention positions open at the city of Aurora right now. They actually have funding for this work, but they can't find enough people to do it. Wow. Yeah, and I spoke to a little boy, an 11-year-old, who's being mentored by Liam Ali, who we just heard from, who told me that his guidance counselor used to be helpful to him, and he still is, but his counselor is now dealing with COVID protocols and all this administrative work half the time, so they don't get as much time together anymore. You know, the people working for violence interrupter and advocacy groups are up at all hours getting texts from kids in the community. They have dozens of people on their caseloads. I would say, no, there are not enough people in this space helping the kids.
0: I'm really fascinated by this idea of the violence interrupters. I know you'll yeah. be doing some more reporting on that for CPR. Well, What lies ahead? Are people afraid this kind of violence, as we've seen in Aurora, will continue?
2: I think this is definitely a low point, but no one can really prognosticate, you know, particularly since law enforcement hasn't really connected these incidents officially yet. Is it all random? No. I, I think there are a lot of factors and things coming together, and I can say that a lot of people are working really hard to try to reach people who are in crisis. That includes people who might be perpetrators. Hmm. And I want to make this Interesting point made by Omar Montgomery, who runs the Aurora branch of the NAACP, and I spoke to him. He said the kids are showing signs of isolation and bad behavior, but so are adults. You know, you've seen the social media videos circulating of grown-ups throwing temper tantrums on airplanes. Yep. And he even brought up January 6th when the US Capitol was attacked by adults who didn't like who was elected president. You know. There is a mirroring, and kids are watching this stuff. And if adults started behaving better, more broadly, he says, it may be an example for kids to do that as well.
0: Thanks for sharing all of these conversations that you had with us.
2: You're welcome, Ryan.
0: CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry on the high number of youth shootings in Aurora in recent weeks and what people are trying to do to end the violence. When we come back, how crime coverage, when it's overblown, can actually reshape criminal justice. Our next guest says that's the story of Denver's so-called Summer of Violence back in 1993. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: It's true that all you really need to know in life you
4: learned in kindergarten. What happens when you miss kindergarten because of a pandemic? I'm Jenny Brindin, education reporter at CPR News. Many kids who are not in a formal classroom with other students for the past year and a half struggle with listening and processing. What letters do they know? What sounds do they know?
0: Are they ready for building words?
4: Kids and teachers getting back on track. Read and listen to the story at CPR.org.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It was dubbed the Summer of Violence, a period in 1993 when there were several high-profile killings in Denver. It led lawmakers to pass harsher punishments for juveniles. But in The New Republic, education reporter Linnell Hancock writes that there was mass hysteria, more so than mass violence. Linnell, thanks for being with us.
3: Uh, Pleasure to be.
0: Briefly take us through the series of events that led up to what would indeed be called the Summer of Violence.
3: Right. So uh, this is a cautionary tale. Um, Media created sense of public panic. Um, And it began in May when uh, a baby was grazed by a stray bullet as he sat in his stroller um, in front of the polar bear exhibit at the City Park Zoo which was horrible, um, that was followed by a six-year-old who was shot in the head as he sat in the backseat of his sister's parked car in the middle of the day. Um, his name was Broderick Bell, who became more or less the, the poster child of the summer of violence. Both of the children thankfully survived, and there weren't any arrests, but um, when the six-year-old was hit, that's when the media, um, all the media in Denver really drilled down and started covering every single aspect. Um, Both of the main newspapers at the time, uh, Rocky Mountain News, uh, which we mourn, and the Denver Post were locked in a newspaper war at the time that was historic uh, and very ferocious. It lasted through the 90s, um, which kind of raised the temperature a bit. Um, And they labeled this the summer of violence so that uh, then all of the other news organizations adopted it. And um, every crime story that happened after that was sort of swept up into the same label and in the same narrative.
0: Hmm. Um, Well, and contrast that narrative for me, the coverage, with the actual crime rate that year? I mean, there are really some fascinating findings in your article and graphs that go along with them.
3: Right, right. So, um, I mean, the, the, the biggest finding is that there were, was actually reported by the newspapers at the time, but it was drowned out um, by the sense of hysteria, that there were fewer violent crimes that summer than any of the summers around it. So um, the idea that this was a unique summer Um, that was more violent than others, wasn't true. Um, The other dominant theme of the coverage, interestingly, was that it was teen gang violence. That was uh, essentially, I would argue, code for Black and Latino kids then. um, That was the teen gangs were, were the main perpetrators. That's what the theme was. But the majority of the actual... Uh, Crimes—the high-profile crimes that were part of this uh, summer of violence—actually involved adults. Um, none of all of that was was uh, not really clear back then. So it was essentially a false myth that that took hold of the public consciousness, um, and it persists today. And importantly, it resulted quite rapidly at the end of that summer with a radical overhaul of Colorado's juvenile justice system.
0: And that is the lasting impact, you say, of the summer of violence. Politicians reacted by changing laws. There was a special session of the legislature. What changed?
3: Yeah, that was uh, and Governor Romer called an emergency session at the end of that summer um, and to bring an iron fist uh, to violent kids. Um, that was the theme. And uh, within five days' time, uh, Colorado remade the state's juvenile justice system, which had been, I, ironically, um, one, a, a national model for progressive reform for about 100 years in, uh, in the United States. Um, and essentially, they made it easier to prosecute children as young as 14 as adults, through a variety of measures, there were harsher mandatory sentences, uh, like life without parole. Um, prosecutors were given unique power to bypass juvenile judge- judges and move children into adult courts and adult prisons. Um, they created a, a military-style boot camp for what they falsely believed were a new breed of violent kids, and this was a, a theme throughout the 90s uh, and and throughout um, the the legislative uh, changes that happened. So Colorado's really been grappling for the last 30 years with the policy and human consequences of that summer. Hmm. Um, There are
0: people who still contend that in 1993, the so-called summer of violence was a real and unique crisis. What do they say?
3: hmm yeah there is it's it's interesting um all from all the different people I spoke to the uh the mayor mayor Webb at the time and uh the district attorney bill Ritter, who you know became governor
0: Indeed.
3: um as well as um uh, who they said different things about uh what they believed happened then, but the sense was there was something unique that this was Um, this was different from other summers. In fact, it wasn't, um, but there is, I think, an investment in in believing that there was in many ways. Um, There was a sense that we have to take back the streets from this violent crime, um, which really is the danger of uh, creating a a media hysteria, because it um, is the best way to lead to excessive punitive policies. It's Public fear for your own safety is a very fragile thing, um, and it can be easily manipulated. So um, people will feel fear if they read about it constantly and they have no other reason to to think that their lives are not in danger. So um, it, uh, so that was that was part of what their problem was. Then I would the opposite. Someone who was very had a very different take. Uh, which I think is more realistic, was Reverend Kelly, who was a, um anti-gang activist, and you could call him a violent violence interrupter. I heard your, 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 your aurora. No um, and, discussion. Uh, this he, is Leon Kelly. He was, yes, he was very, he was rare back then. He was working for years in the 80s in the black community. He was burying black children who were being shot. Um, there was an infiltration um from L.A. of the Bloods and the Crips in the early 80s, and they were taking advantage of the black and Latino neighborhoods. He could not get the attention of the governor and the city officials back then. He was very frustrated, but he noticed in 93, okay, everybody's paying attention now. What's the difference? And the difference he saw was that the victims were white. They were majority white. Hmm. Uh, The victims, the four uh, white adults, Victims were white, and uh, one of the three children victims were white, and this was an example of how the the shootings and the violence had sort of filtered out of the black neighborhoods, and they were affecting um, those uh, the elite in power. So,
0: you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and education reporter Linnell Hancock joins us. Her latest piece. Uh, in the New Republic is called, When Denver Lost Its Mind Over Youth Crime. Uh, It is an assessment of the so-called summer of violence in 1993. I do want to move on to one woman who in many ways represents a different view of juvenile crime and punishment. Um, We have interviewed Charletta Evans in the past, and she's in your article uh, tell tell us just briefly about what happened to her son, Kayson Evans, in Denver just a few years later in 95.
3: In 95, it was in the wake of the Summer of Violence uh, policies, and uh, she had uh, parked her car in front of a Denver house uh, so she could dash in and pick up her grandniece. Um, her two boys were in the backseat of her car, and um, while she was in the house, gunfire erupted, and she rushed out uh, with her three-year-old niece, and within moments realized that Kason had been hit uh, by bullets, and uh, he died in her arms um, before the medics could get there. Uh, She was, a week later, uh, she was in court and meeting her son's killer for the first time, and she'd been prepared by the prosecutors for basically, I would argue the stereotype: a hardcore, worst of the worst, uh, hardcore gang killer who really deserved life in prison. Um, and she had no, she didn't know him. She had no reason not to believe it. The press at the time, of course, didn't um, uh, didn't look at the the mitigating circumstances or didn't humanize um, any of the the suspects at the time. Um, and when she saw him in court, she was stunned because she said, I, I couldn't believe he was nothing like they said. He was a little boy and he was scared. And she saw someone who was a human who could be redeemed.
0: Yeah. So this is a, a 15-year-old, Raymond Johnson. Uh, indeed, she sees him in court. She makes, Charlotta Evans does, uh, very quickly, a decision to forgive him Here's what Evans told us in a 2011 interview about that um, scene in the courtroom.
4: Raymond Johnson was uh, raised by his grandmother and a plethora of other first cousins. And, you know, he was clothed, fed, and put to bed. And that was the best that she can do with having a house full of grandchildren He was left by his mother. Um, Most of his first cousins are incarcerated to this day. You know, there's been, there's drug addiction. There was pretty much, he raised himself.
0: Charlotta Evans eventually visited Johnson in prison in 2012 through a restorative justice program. Johnson was just released from prison after more than 25 years behind bars. And this notion of, Johnson is being capable of redemption. I mean, that thinking is actually more in line with how the U.S. Supreme Court has recently ruled on juvenile punishment. Uh, It's like a 180-degree turn from the reaction to the summer of violence. Give us a sense of what the court has said, Linnell.
3: Right. That was in the mid-2000s. The shift in law and order uh, conversation really changed nationwide. Uh, The Supreme Court stepped in in the mid ninety and mid two thousands, and ruled that these life sentences for uh, kids who have been accused of crimes when they were children are cruel and unusual and therefore unconstitutional. Uh, so states at that point began to look back at who the people were that that were charged as children and and put in prison for life. And this is across the United States. Mm -hmm. Colorado is not an outlier here. Nearly every state in the the United States by the end of the 90s had similar laws to uh, prosecute children as adults. Um, And uh, Colorado had up to 50 people around at one point serving life sentences who were disproportionately black men. Uh, So the the courts have said uh, a number of things. And one of them was they relied on neuroscience um, really uniquely and um, in their decision saying uh, juveniles are not quite their brains and their their developmental levels are not uh, quite finished yet. Right. They aren't quite adults yet. And so they shouldn't be subject to uh, to the same punishment as adults, it's wrong for them. They have more of a chance of, of redemption and rehabilitation and to give up on them and to throw them away, as Charletta has told me, um, doesn't, doesn't serve them and it doesn't serve her. She couldn't, she couldn't uh, heal her own grief in such a punishing system. She really needed to meet Raymond um, in that restorative justice meeting that, that you mentioned.
0: And when, when you talk about the brain development uh, that the Supreme Court has relied on in the past, I mean, that has a lot to do with impulse control. It has a lot to do with understanding consequences, uh, which reflects a bit of what we heard from our justice reporter, Alice and Sherry, in the conversation about youth violence in Aurora. Linnell, before we go, uh, what caveats, What what warnings does this period in 1993 in Colorado uh offer us today uh as we you know as we see an uptick in crime
3: yes well um uh, i think that it's it's very important and i see in colorado matters um has moved in this direction to a great degree to to have a, a justice beat as opposed to a cop beat mm. um, the uh, to sort of look at crime and more uh, more broadly, and and to pay attention to those who are committing crime, to look at um, at ways that the, the roots of violence and the sources of violence uh, that none of that happened in uh, in the 90s, um, and it's also it's very important when there's a, a spike in crime. To make sure that the media doesn't uh, overblow it, um, doesn't strike alarms and, and throw a match into the fire, that might create the perception that crime is worse than it is. Um, so that that's when the worst kind of policies result. So isn't, um, isn't there I a
0: danger I, though of underreporting?
3: Well, I don't think there's ever a danger of underreporting. It should be reported absolutely. It's a matter of reporting it better and reporting it more broadly, um, rather than relying on uh, one of the other big caveats back then, and still happens today in many places, is that over-reliance on the, uh, among crime reporters on prosecutors and police as the main sources, and that's where it begins and ends.
0: But again, having the context, as you say, of a beat that goes beyond amplifying those voices... Uh, and asking bigger questions of the community. Reporter Lynn Hancock, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: She's also a journalism professor at Columbia. And in The New Republic, she's written When Denver Lost Its Mind Over Youth Crime, about the so-called Summer of Violence in 1993. And there's much more ahead in our next half hour. Literacy, courtesy of Dolly Parton, and remembering a Supreme Court justice slash poet. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. <laughs> If you have a car that you've been meaning to get rid of, just sitting around in your driveway or garage, you can clear out that space and make a difference at the same time by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is easy and safe, and your donation can be handled online without any face-to-face interaction. The proceeds of your gift will help financially support CPR. Start the process now on the support page at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The governor is scheduled to join us next week, just as the Omicron variant's been detected in Colorado. We welcome your questions for Governor Polis about COVID or other pressing issues. Record your question for us with your first and last name and where you live. Here's the number, 303-871-9191. Extension 4480. So that's CPR's main number, 303 and then punch in 4480. In one man, Colorado has lost a justice and a poet. Gregory Hobbs was a member of the state Supreme Court and a bard. Hobbs died Monday at age 76. He'd served on Colorado's high court from 1996 to 2015, appointed by Democratic Governor Roy Romer. Justice Hobbs was an expert in Western water law, which can be so complicated, others merely drown in it. Water was also the subject of some of his poetry. Here he is in 2011 reciting his own Colorado Mother of Rivers,
1: When I was young, the water sang of being here before I am, of falling sweet and soft and slow, to berry bog and high meadow, and held me in her lap and cooed the willow roots, the gaining pools, and called me through bright dappled grass, and called me, oh, my shining one, and shaped a bed to lay me on and played the flute so high and clear, and shape the stones to carry me when I am young and full of fight, for roaring here and roaring there, for pouring torrents in the air. When I am young as mountain snow in crag and cleft and cracked window. I call the greenback cutthroat trout, I call the nymph and helgrimite, I call the hatch to catch a wind, I call upon the mountain track i call the scarlet to the jaw as morning calls her own hatchlings call yampa white the rio grande san juan the platte the arkansas
0: mother of rivers from the now late greg hobbs the poem became a song when a fellow water expert jorge figueroa rapped it at a water conference of course Therefore, pouring torrents in the air, high
1: and young as mountains, snowing, crag and and cracked with blows. I call all the queen back off from the town. I call all the dams on the tramite. I call the hatch to catch a queen.
0: I call all this carlet to the joys. Colorado's attorney general has called Justice Hobbs one of the state's greatest legal minds and a wonderful person who shared his joy for life with everyone around him. Alzheimer's disease forced Rebecca Chop to step down as chancellor at the University of Denver. That was in 2019. Previously, she'd been president of Colgate University and Swarthmore College. Dementia is difficult for anyone, but there are unique struggles for educators like Chop. Since leaving DU, she has opened up about her journey. So has her husband. She's going to lose herself. All that is important to her, everything, she'll
1: lose. I hurt for her. It's a huge loss for her. Huge loss. It's a huge loss for the world as far as
0: I'm concerned. That's from an Alzheimer's Association video. Chop is also a leading scholar in religion and American culture, was dean at Yale's Divinity School. And our conversation from back in June stands out as we mark 20 years of Colorado Matters. Let's listen back. Thank you for being with us. It's good to
4: be here. Thank you. Thank you for all you do.
0: Announcing your departure from DU, you said it was because of a, quote, complex neurological disorder. Why did you call it that at the time?
4: Well, it's a great question. You know, I had just gotten the diagnosis. Um, I had been on a journey with lots of doctors for several months. And had just gotten the diagnosis and realized I was going to have to step down immediately. And my mind wasn't quite around it. I didn't know if I wanted to be identified as an Alzheimer's victim. Um, And several of my doctors told me that, indeed, there were so many stereotypes of the fact that you just go to complete, you know, last stage immediately in people's minds. So they said, take your time. And I did tell the board of trustees that it was Alzheimer's, but I wasn't quite ready to go public. I also wanted time to process it with my family and my friends.
0: I want to talk a bit about the stereotypes, the stigma. Mm -hmm. So I think what I heard you say there is the moment someone hears that there's an Alzheimer's diagnosis, they jump to the end. There's, there's no focus and no realization that it is a path. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
4: Yes, and, and that it's a unique path for every person. So um, when I told uh, some people, of course, many, many people cried with me, and they were full of sympathy and empathy and those kinds of things, that was wonderful. But I had people do things like talk louder to me, um, ask me to resign from a board, or talk just to my husband as if I had lost all comprehension. So I think there are a lot of stereotypes out there about the disease.
0: Would you speak up when people would do that?
4: Um, I just kept talking to them, and, and I usually use humor. So I usually say, no, my mind may dissolve. My hearing's quite good.
0: <laughs> <Okay. So laughs> my mind may dissolve. My yes. hearing's quite good. It's Maybe a little gallows humor. Yes, a little gallows humor. Mm -hmm. When did you first get a hint that something wasn't uh, as it used to be with your memory?
4: Well, that's that's the very odd thing. And this is really a story about the importance of doctors recognizing things that you may not. So I really didn't have particular signs. Looking back, now I see things. Mm. But at that point, I didn't. I went in for my annual physical. My doctor asked me how I was. I said, well, I'm great. I'm sleeping. I'd never slept very much in my life. So all of a sudden, I was sleeping eight, nine hours a night after sleeping four or five a night. And I said it was just wonderful. And I also told her it was so interesting I'd gotten lost on the way to her office. Now, I had never gotten lost before that and never gotten lost since that. So maybe my body was just saying, warning sign, warning sign. And she said, well, she's a great primary physician. She said, let's give you a little cognition test. Her nurse came in, gave me a cognition test, it took about 10 minutes. And she said, you know, I don't like when I'm seeing her. And she said, it's really high and it's really low and I'm going to refer you to more testing. And that pattern kept going on. I would take tests two hours, eight hours, and then I had various brain scans. And then it was determined I had Alzheimer's, but. I didn't, um, that's part of why early detection is so wonderful. It gave me the chance to do behavioral intervention, diet, exercise, reading, art, music.
0: And it required a doctor who knew the subtle, the quite subtle signs of this.
4: Correct. It did. And that's so important. So many doctors either don't give the test. I personally think everybody should get a baseline, maybe at the age of 62 or 65. Hmm. I mean, we get colonoscopies. They're required. Why can't we have these cognition tests? They're a lot cheaper, and they're much easier to go through.
0: I know of one test for Alzheimer's. is where someone is asked to draw a clock with the time correctly showing. I think it's like 10 minutes past 11. What were those sorts of tests that yes. you did?
4: Yes, that that's the kind of thing. So, so the little 10-minute diagnosis test includes that. It includes maybe drawing through a maze. It, it, they read you a story and you have to answer some questions. Um, numbers, forward and backwards, can you remember five numbers, forward and backwards, seven numbers, and then words. And that that was a little hard for me. So they give you five words and you have to remember them. And maybe seven minutes later they ask you what the words were. Mm. So then the, the other tests go from there. You can have a two-hour one with more variations.
0: This must feel like loss to you. Um, yeah, I mean,
4: it. I had this fabulous uh, mission-based career. I had a purpose in life, and I loved it. I mean, I really, truly loved it. Even the endless meetings, that <laughs> I loved. <laughs> but uh, so that was a lot of loss, and and not being able to, you know. Right now what I find hard is um, I always had tremendous energies. I love people. I love social engagement. Give me a big party. Give me an event to speak at, whatever. And I have to really monitor those now because I get tired. So there's loss. But, you know, right now um, there's also new discovery. Art, music, time to do things, time to spend with my husband.
0: I think that's the second time you've mentioned – The art, you've taken up painting. Yes. And you see that as uh, healing, as therapy. Tell me why.
4: Well, anything that establishes kind of uh, new neuropathways, plasticities, especially me, I was so, I'm going to use these common terms, you know, kind of left brain, you know, (laughs) alpha, um, to do the kind of meditative right brain of art, the visualization, has been really powerful and it the kind of art i do is portrait painting it's realistic portrait painting so it it requires a lot of
0: thinking
4: and studying and taking lessons
0: and you were not painting before this never so, never so you've learned something when you say forming new neural pathways yes mm-hmm. 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 anything else you're learning
4: well i'm uh, i joined a choir I moved into a senior community. My husband and I decided that we needed to uh, do that and it would be easier for both of us. So we found a great one uh, called The Ridge out in the foothills and they have a choir. So um, this Friday I'm taking my first voice lesson.
0: So. Did you d- decide to make that move in part because of the kind of continuum of care you can expect? Correct. At a facility like that? Correct. Given what your journey is likely to be?
4: Correct. Mm-hmm. So they, right now we're in independent living. They have assisted living. They have memory
0: care. What are some of the signs of Alzheimer's you notice these days? Has it changed much?
4: Yeah. it's. Um, I'm very fortunate that my cognitive tests have remained stable for two years. Um, but I have... Noted more memory lapses, uh, short-term memory especially. Um, Give me an example of when that happened. Okay. The other day, somebody called me to talk about a uh, – he was a fitness trainer, somebody I'm interested in in doing some work with. And uh, my husband was there, heard the call. The next day, I'd completely forgotten it. Uh, very, very common for me to book appointments over one another. So we keep now an old-fashioned paper calendar, and I have to remember to go to it all the time. Um, and then to
0: write immediately down things you commit to.
4: Immediately. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, run to that paper calendar. And um, then social issues. Um, I can't be in large crowds. Um, um, ambient background noise uh, bothers me. Um, I can't handle a lot of... um, I I like to say um, that I have a prescription for my doctor to avoid toxic people. Okay. So I really can't uh, deal with uh, a lot of toxic, mean kind of stuff. Now, none of us like it, but we always have blinders or screens or kind of armor. And I think what happens when you have, um, for many of us, when we have this disease is that our emotional shields start to go down. And so it is more upsetting. And you have to avoid being upset because that adds stress, and stress is the worst thing you can do for your brain.
0: You are a scholar of religion and American culture. I mentioned you were dean at Yale's Divinity School. Do you look at this experience through a faith or a religious lens? Absolutely. And yes. what what does that tell you?
4: Well, I don't... Um, You know, I think for me, it's part of one's journeys, and I'm a, I'm a Christian um, by practice, and, and so we have scriptures that are full of lamentation and sadness, advice about being peaceful. Um, I was just reading in the Gospel of John how um, all the struggles uh, in life are also ways to give witness, so to speak. Um, I'm not a... I'm not an evangelical and I don't use that kind of evangelical language, but I do use the language of giving witness to love, to caring, uh, finding joy in, in nature and beauty and things like that. So I, I find it actually an incredibly spiritual time, maybe because it's given me the time to slow down.
0: This is a really delicate question and one that may very well be intertwined with your faith. But is, is there a point of decline where you'd rather not live? Have you had those thoughts or even those discussions? Oh,
4: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, it's a, it's a point when I can no longer engage uh, with others, when I don't know my husband or my son or my close friends, when I take no enjoyment, and instead I take the earth's resources <laughs> I use our resources. I've often said to my husband, um, after providing for him and and others, I would rather money go to a scholarship at one of the schools I've been to or I went to um, than to support me on life support. That makes no sense to me.
0: Hmm. I'm really grateful for your candor about it. Thank you. Because it's a deeply private issue. As baby boomers age in Colorado, uh, we just know that diagnoses of Alzheimer's and dementia will increase. And and so, do you have specific advice? I guess maybe we should start with healthcare professionals in terms of the care they give.
4: Yes, uh, it's really a good question. Really an important question. One, I think healthcare professionals uh, do need to be into early detection. I really do think there is no reason, given all the data. That people at 65 approximately should not be given routine test. I don't think they need to wait until symptoms show. Second, I think um, healthcare providers need to tell the truth. If they suspect it, if they have the diagnosis, they need to share it. I recently heard of a of a woman who found out she was on one of these drugs by hearing. That a drug she was prescribed is a drug they give for Alzheimer's and only Alzheimer's.
0: Oh, the healthcare professional never told her the right. circumstances around the prescription. Correct. My goodness. Correct. That, that doesn't seem ethical. No. Oh.
4: <laughs> but doc many doctors do think that there's nothing you can do. They're 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 still a little uninformed, some of our doctors, but they're gonna get informed. We're working on that.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ryan. Rebecca Chopp of Lakewood stepped down as Chancellor of the University of Denver in 2019 after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Chopp more recently has volunteered with the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado to help people understand the disease. And we listen back to that June interview, which stands out as Colorado Matters marks two decades on the air. Kiddos in Colorado could soon get free books as the Imagination Library expands statewide. It's already a global program backed by this American icon.
4: This is Dolly Parton. I want to personally thank Governor Polis and Senator Bridges for leading the way to bring the Imagination Library into your state of Colorado. Now we've still got some work to do, but we're going to get there. So let's put some wings on that Imagination Library. Let's get some books in the hands of more children. Thank you for helping out.
0: A video shared earlier this week, she mentioned State Senator Jeff Bridges of Arapahoe County. The Imagination Library's been in Colorado since '05, but this means serving all 64 counties. For all her achievements in music and business, Dolly Parton says her literacy nonprofit holds a special place.
4: Before he passed away, my daddy told me that the Imagination Library probably was the most important thing I'd ever done. Now, I can't tell you how much that meant to me because I created the Imagination Library as a tribute to my daddy. He was the smartest man I've ever known, but I knew in my heart his inability to read probably kept him from seeing all his
0: dreams come true. Inspiring kids to love to read became my mission. Colorado children five and under qualify for free books. Families can see if deliveries available in their community at the Imagination Library's website. I've always been a dreamer, and dreams are special things. But dreams are of no value if they're not equipped with wings. So secure yourself for climbing. Make ready for the flight. Don't let your chance go by. You're made. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that brings imagination to the show each day. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete, Pete Kramer,
4: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
3: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. A hat tip as well to Megan Verlee. You're with CPR News and KRCC.